Hello, this is Vicky, and welcome to Sources and Six. You can get this podcast from where you get your podcasts from: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Earlier this year, Okta, a major identity provider, reported that it was breached. What actually happened during the Okta compromise? Today on Sources and Sinks, I chat with Tarun of Banyan Security to talk about what went down during the Okta breach and how organizations can protect themselves from similar situations. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Tarun, and welcome. First of all, can we start with a little bit of a self introduction? Can you tell us what you do and how long have you been doing it? Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Vicky. My name is Tarun Desikin. I'm one of the co-founders of a zero trust security startup in San Francisco called Banyan Security. We've been doing this for about five or six years. And when we started Banyan, we had this crazy idea. It would be, it was that people would work from anywhere, and they would need to access applications that would be running anywhere. And back then, it was a crazy idea because folks still came to the office. You know, everyone had like an office network, and the office network gave them the privilege to connect to the corporate applications they needed to do their job. That's how most organizations had been set up. But about five years ago, you know, I started working remotely. My co-founders, we started seeing this theme that more and more people wanted to work from anywhere, and so that's how we started Banyan. But in all honesty, I would say for the first two three years, you know, it was kind of quiet. There were some early adopter customers who kind of bought into what we were doing. But of course, in the last two years with the pandemic, you know, work from anywhere, remote work has just become normal, as it were. Every organization today is dealing with a work from anywhere kind of situation, and so that's what our product does. That's what I do day to day is figure out how to securely provide access in a world where your employees could be literally anywhere, you know, and that's a pretty challenging problem, and it's been fun. Great, thanks for that introduction to what you do. And I noticed that you recently wrote a blog about the January 2022 Okta compromise and your take on it. Can you start by giving us a quick overview on what went down with the Okta compromise? Yeah, absolutely. And for folks, for the listeners who don't know what Okta is, OCTA. This is one of the fastest growing security companies in the world today. It's a huge business, and essentially, what they do is they provide single sign-on, which is if you're an employee and you open up your laptop and you need to access something, you don't need to remember like twenty different passwords. You don't need to remember a password for Dropbox, a password for Gmail, a password for Office three sixty five. Instead, you just go to Okta, you authenticate with Okta, and once you authenticate with Okta, you can get access to all the applications you need. And so this concept has existed for a long time. Okta was kind of a pioneer in the cloud identity space, and today they have like fifteen thousand plus customers. Pretty much every enterprise uses Okta. And so what happened recently, just a few weeks ago, was that Okta announced a breach. They were like, "Holy crap, we've been hacked!" And as you can imagine, Okta is the heart of so many enterprise security programs, right? Like, it if Okta gets hacked. Then essentially, the 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 story that goes off in your head is that my authentication point has been hacked. If my if your authentication point gets hacked, then you know the attackers have unfettered access to every piece of corporate security that that you have out there. So it can be a really really big deal. 
That's for sure. And what's the situation that led to that realization that oh, we were actually compromised? Yeah, and that's the crazy thing. So there was this group. There's a hacker group called Lapsus Dollop. It turns out it's a bunch of teenagers in England <laughs> using Telegram accounts. But we didn't know all of this back then. All we got in the first couple of weeks was some screenshots. We saw screenshots of an admin portal. We saw screenshots of Cloudflare's Okta account. Right, Cloudflare is one of the largest networking companies in the world. And so, what? How this breach initially got announced was literally by some hacker, essentially saying, "Hey, look, I did something cool. I have access to these Okta admin accounts, and I can see what Cloudflare's users are doing." And he posted a bunch of screenshots. So that's the first the world heard about this. And as you can imagine, you know, people, you know, the world we're in, you know, there's definitely a new cycle, hype cycle, threat cycle, and so everyone kind of just panicked. Everyone just assumed worst case, holy cow, Okta is hacked, and with the Okta capability, they've now hacked Cloudflare as well. The world is ending. So that that's how this thing came to our attention. It came with a bunch of panic. Right, and I think the compromise was announced on March twenty second this year, but the compromise actually happened back in January, right? And there's it's it's been a while, and this entire time, like people did not know this actually happened, and first people didn't know when the compromise, when the breach happened, but also they didn't know about the extent of which. Parts of Octa's customer base was actually affected. Exactly, I forgot to mention that the screenshots had the date of January back then. So, so the person, the hacker who posted the screenshots, posted it in March, but the, all the timestamps were in January. So, the other reason of the panic was that not only had these guys been hacked,、um, the hackers have have had access for two plus months. Like they could have caused all kinds of damage because of the time duration. Yeah, yeah, and、um, I know you're not from Okta, and they haven't, and probably will not release all the information that is related to the compromise. So we know that it's through this third-party customer support provider called Cytel. Do you have any idea of how that might have happened, and how the group Lapis Dollar Sign actually gained access to the account that allowed them access to these Okta instances? Yeah, so I think information has petered out little bit, little bit at, at a time, and then just yesterday, Octa had hired Mandiant to go do a forensic analysis of what actually happened. So I think at this point,、uh, we're pretty clear about what happened. So what essentially happened was Cytel, which is kind of a business process outsourcing firm, they essentially run support centers for many, many tech companies. Cytel got hacked. So the the underlying technology, the support provider actually got hacked, and specifically their VPN was hacked. And you know this is MySpace, so forgive me, but VPNs just get hacked all the time. They typically the the root username is admin and the password is admin, and so anybody who knows that can get into a VPN. We saw this with SolarWinds, we saw this with Kaseya. This just keeps happening. So it, we shouldn't be surprised that that Cytel got hacked. But once Cytel got hacked. Essentially, what happened was the attacker realized that many of the employees of Cytel, Cytel itself wasn't very valuable, but Cytel was working for some very valuable companies. So they started targeting some employees who were essentially subcontractors for Okta. 
And so the hackers, they then compromised the device of one of these subcontractors. Essentially, they got an RDP session onto a Windows laptop that was used by one of the Okta support reps. And once they got RDP access, you're essentially an administrator of that laptop. You know, they started poking around, they started seeing what accounts did this support engineer have access to and so on. Now, how did they get RDP access? I'm guessing, you know, the, the subcontractor's device's firewall was turned off. And people sometimes do that, you know, they're not very careful with their devices. So the firewall was turned off, they used some kind of remote protocol and they basically compromised the device. And once they were able to compromise the device, they were able to pretend to be the support engineer and kind of poke around. So, so that was the first form of attack. And as is with these hacks, what they try to do is they try to escalate the privileges. So, hey, I've only compromised the device. Can I actually compromise the user's account itself was the next step. So what they tried to do is they opened a browser tab and they tried to reset multi-factor authentication. And when they tried to reset multi-factor authentication, fortunately, this subcontractor noticed it because you know you get an email saying, a new multi-factor has been registered with your account. And the subcontractor was like, oh, I didn't register any new multi-factor. And that's when he let the security team know. And that's that all happened in January. And that's when Okta realized, Cytel realized that it actually had been breached. Mm-hmm. And is there an estimate for exactly how many Okta customers are affected? So in the initial release, so this in March, when Okta did an analysis, they didn't have all the data. So because the VPN had gotten breached, they essentially had to assume that the entire Cytel network was breached. And even though they only had a screenshot from one support engineer's device, they had to assume every device was breached because they just didn't know. So based on that analysis, they said, oh, we have 500 plus customers who might be impacted. And 500 customers for Okta is about 2-3% of their total customer base. So it's not a, not a huge number, but still not insignificant. So the initial analysis, because of you know, the lack of data, was that 500 plus customers have been impacted. Now, what has happened in the last four weeks is that the forensics investigators have gone in, they've kind of tracked exactly what every user did, which what path the malicious user followed and so forth. And now they figured out that actually it's only two Okta customers that have been impacted. So the breach was actually much, much, much less than the initial panic suggested. So essentially, the only two accounts that that particular support engineer's desktop has access to are the only ones that the attackers gained access to in this breach. Exactly. So now that we have all the data, it looks like they have access. They had access to just those two accounts. And even in those two accounts, they literally could just view things. It's not like they could go add a user, delete a user, you know, create a new policy and so forth. They mm-hmm. had very minimal access to those accounts. So this, the, the end result is after all this panic, after all this brouhaha, I mean, okay, it was, it was not a good thing to happen, but it wasn't the worst thing either. Right. So the principle of least privilege really worked here in case that the support engineer had more access for these Okta customer accounts and things could have been much worse. But in this case, it was just view access and some limited amounts of private data was leaked. 
that's that would be my understanding as well. And just for a moment, let's just look at a related breach, right? Uh, solar winds, maybe two years ago. So essentially, it was a similar breach in the sense, solar winds had a static admin username password. So anyone could use the solar winds box and get unfettered access to a network. So in that case, there was no least privilege access. So in those breaches, for example, they got into government networks. They were able to move laterally around the different government services and web servers and exfiltrate a ton of data. In the Okta case, even though the entire network got breached, that support engineer only had access to very specific resources they needed. So the worst thing the attacker could do was very limited. Okta got saved by all of these extra security measures that were put in place, even though they, the third-party customer support agency, Cytel, got breached. I feel like this situation could happen quite easily to a lot of SaaS companies, to be honest, and it doesn't seem like it's a result of particularly big oversight or some gigantic mistake on Okta's behalf, right? Yeah, I think Okta did make some mistakes, but I don't think it was perhaps related to security, right? I think Okta's mistake seems to have been more logistics, communication, transparency, those kinds of, because they knew about this event in January and they didn't take any action till the kind of all this panic happened in March and April. So I completely agree with you that 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 this could have happened to anyone and the kind of lessons we have taken away from the Octo breach may not be that pertinent to actually what happened. Specifically, like all SaaS vendors need to administer their multi-tenant. By definition, a SaaS vendor supports many customers on the same software. And so once you start doing that, and you know, you guys at ShiftLeft probably have something like this, Banyan, we have something like this. Once you have hundreds of customers, thousands of customers, you need to be able to centrally manage how those customers use the product. And so you create these admin interfaces and admin interfaces allow you to do simple things like creating new accounts, deleting accounts, upgrading accounts, adding users to account and so on. And so every SaaS vendor has administrative interfaces. And then once a SaaS vendor gets to a certain size like Okta with 15,000 customers, you need, you need more help. It's not just one or two support engineers can support such a large customer base you start needing hundreds and thousands of support engineers, at which point you outsource the function. So not only then do you create these administrative interfaces that have super user kind of privileges, you now have support outsourcing firms, vendors essentially access those interfaces. And this is true of every company, right? CRM businesses, travel expense businesses, you know, every, every kind of SaaS vendor has support firms administering accounts. When your outsource vendor gets hacked, that hacker has you know, administrative access to essentially the crown jewels. And that's very dangerous. That could happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. But that also seems like an unavoidable problem, right? Are there some ways that SaaS companies can try to mitigate this risk somehow? Yeah. And you know, I, I wrote a post that talks about some of the mitigation, but I think the best proof is just yesterday. Okta announced what mitigation it itself would take. So the first thing Okta did in response was to say, hey, we will enforce zero trust on all our vendors. Like all our vendors must prove that they are using zero trust methodology for how their workforce accesses corporate resources. 
So that's that's one thing Okta themselves did. And, and you know, the implementation of a zero trust methodology takes many shapes and forms, but it's some good high-level concepts. The first thing is no static credentials. So when, when I say a static credential, I mean a username and a password that is fixed and fairly well-known. Like SolarWinds, the username was admin and the password was SolarWinds. So, you know, if you have a credential that is never changing, it's inevitable that someone's going to use it and hack it. So getting rid of static credentials is one very good practice, right? And like this, there are two or three or four other practices. The other practice that is really good to have is uh, device verification. So Okta did not enforce this, right? What they said was, if you come from the CITL network, you are trusted, I will give you access, which is problematic because if someone hacks the CITL network, you have to assume every single device has been compromised which is what led to the initial panic when they said 500 plus customers have been hacked. Right? If they could figure out exactly which device was hacked using device posture, device trust, that could have significantly narrowed the scope of this incident. So that's another good practice. And depending on your organization, there are a few other practices you can put in place to make sure that you are, you are securing your administrative interfaces commensurate to the risk that they potentially hold for your organization. And going back to the zero trust principle, can you go through what that means for most organizations besides, let's say things like no static credentials and authenticating devices? What does this principle in essence mean? And what does it mean for a company's security posture? Yeah, so here I'm a little biased. You know, I, I run a zero trust company. So the, the first thing is that many people have decided zero trust is a buzzword. It, you know, it's just like a buzzword like crypto or Web3. It means nothing. And I can understand because of all the marketing and noise around it, people feel that way. But the reality is zero trust is actually some very sound principles and it has existed for a long time. And the simplest way to describe it is to say every action shall be explicitly authenticated and authorized. So that's what zero trust essentially boils down to. You want to explicit, so not implicitly trust someone. You want to explicitly say, I know who this user is. I know what device they're coming from. I give them access to this resource. So that's what zero trust is. And the reason it is so important is historically, organizations haven't needed zero trust. See, everybody used to come into the office. You were physically present at a desk and your laptop was connected to a network through an ethernet cable. And so when you have that physical presence and a physical network, that often is enough trust, right? It's really hard for Vicky to break into my office and for me not to notice it. So in that world, we didn't need zero trust. Like once you are in the office, you have the right to do everything. You know, you can access your mail, you can access the CRM system, upload your sales data, you can access the printer. So that's how the enterprise security model was built. And a lot of implicit trust was baked in. Now, once people no longer come to the office, once people work remotely, or even worse, you outsource some core capability to a vendor who's even further remote from your organization, the risk starts going higher and higher and higher. And that's when zero trust really becomes important, where you no longer implicitly trust the network or the IP address or, you know, um, in, in some cases, the Wi-Fi network that the device is on, 
you need to explicitly ask them to authenticate and authorize every single time. And that's the zero trust principle. And that's what really would help reduce the impact of such breaches. That makes sense. In this case, regarding the Okta breach, if there was zero trust with Okta's relationship with Cytel, then they would probably find out who was impacted fairly soon. And they could quickly identify which workstation was compromised and quickly contain the breach. And in fact, that's what their remediation has been, which they just announced. They said, going forward, all our vendors shall use a zero trust system to access our resources. And, and zero trust just doesn't mean there is no trust, even though you know the term zero trust might mm-hmm. indicate there's no trust. Zero trust just means I shall explicitly verify your level of trust regularly. And is that an easy thing to do? I feel like from an implementation level, that would be quite complicated, right? So the complexity can come in many forms. So one type of complexity actually might be in terms of the infrastructure side. You might have so many servers and so many applications. You yourself as a security practitioner may not know which ones need zero trust. The other complexity is from the user perspective. If the user is has been used to just opening up their laptop and connecting to an application to doing their job, and then suddenly you make them jump through like five different hoops. Oh, you must MFA here. You must attest to your device here. You must enter some code here. And they're going to get pissed off too. So zero trust implementation is really this trade-off between user experience and security posture. And you know, as a vendor in the space, I can tell you that there are good solutions out there that actually can do both. They can both improve your security posture while actually making the user experience better. And a specific example, like just a technical example, is a better use of certificates. So what Banyan does is we essentially put certificates on your laptop. So you as a user don't even know that that's happening. But behind the scenes, we use these certificates to authenticate the device, check the posture, make sure we know it is doing the right thing. And so from a user experience perspective, your user experience gets a lot better because there's no explicit, you don't have to go click buttons and MFA and all of that. All the the security checks are done transparently behind the scenes. And then from a security perspective, because the certificate is used, the security professional knows exactly, hey, it's Vicky, it's on this device, she's trying to access this resource. They get a granular audit log. So that's just one example of where a zero trust solution can both improve the user experience and the security posture. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that one of the ways that uh, organizations can achieve this zero trust security on a larger scale is to act as if the internal network are machines on the internet, right? Where when we're connecting to a server, we perform some digital certificate checks to make sure that the machine is actually a trusted machine that has been verified. That, that, that is the general principle of zero trust. And, okay. But, but you, can, you can imagine how complicated this can get, right? Because large organizations, we're not talking hundreds or thousands of servers. Sometimes we're talking about millions of servers. So... How, how do we roll this out at scale so we get the security benefits without it becoming such an operationally complex solution? And, and that's, that's the challenge in this space. You know, that's why we've been working on this business for several years. I think the market has changed, though, where now the, the, the consumer is demanding such a product. And so the vendors such as ourselves have started building the technology to make it possible. 
So it's kind of like the electric car, right? When it got started, everyone thought, my God, this is a crazy idea. You know, I need to recharge every two hours. I only have 100 miles. But once people started using cars, if you see today, you know, your electric cars can go 400 miles. The batteries got better. The charging networks got better. And I think it's similar with zero trust, where now that the market understands the need for a zero trust kind of security solution, the vendors have started building the capabilities to allow zero trust to be deployed at scale. That makes sense. There's probably a lot of different technical difficulties to solve in order to achieve this zero trust network ideal. But when we actually do achieve it, organizations will be much safer because of it. Absolutely. And the other thing is, it's a myth that only the largest companies can roll out zero trust. The technology has been democratized now where even small organizations, individuals can all very easily consume and deploy zero trust in their own environments. Can you give us some examples of that? Let's say that uh, a small business or an individual wants to adopt the principle of zero trust. What should they do? Yeah. So, you know, if it's a more development oriented shop, there are open source solutions. You know, companies such as HashiCorp have open source solutions where you can build a stack yourself. If you're a small company and you want a free service instead, Banyan offers a free zero trust service. So my company does this where you can deploy Banyan for free, use it for about 20 users. There's no price. You can use it forever. So a lot of vendors, a lot of open source solutions are coming out to solve the problems. And I would encourage your listeners to go try them. And where can our listeners find this resource online? Right. So my company, Banyan, is available at banyansecurity.io or just, you know, your favorite Google. And just Google Zero Trust Banyan and you'll land on our free product and just click the start button. And here is our commitment to anyone who tries, you know, you'll be up and running in less than 15 minutes. And that's, that is kind of a point of differentiation for our product. And, you know, we're very proud of what, that we've been able to do that. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that information. And thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast room. That has been really, really informative. And thank you for sharing your expertise. Thanks a lot for having me, Vicky. It was a lot of fun.